This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Kathy Park Hong is a poet, essayist, and the author of Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning, a beautifully written book about family, identity, culture, and self-worth. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Today, Kathy and I talk about the idea of conditional love and how it affects second-generation immigrant children, and then, in turn, how it continues to reverberate among the third generation, but in starkly different ways. Kathy talks us through how becoming a parent forced her to reckon with her own upbringing and the complicated nature of assimilation in both what it afforded her, but also what's been lost in the process. We talk about how entrenched beauty and status ideals are in Asian American culture and how deeply self-worth is tied to net worth. And we discuss why, when it comes to representation in the media, Hollywood can't pat itself on the back quite yet. Especially in Korean culture, I think there's a lot of so much weight put on appearance and status. But what's not really talked about is how much appearance and status are based on whiteness, on codes of whiteness and Western capitalism. Okay, let's get to my chat with Kathy Park Hong. I loved Minor Feelings. Beautifully written. And I related as much as I could to so many parts of it, particularly one when you sort of open talking about the, I don't even know what you would call it. I know there's a term, but you talk about having just finished writing a book and feeling so depressed and in Mm -hmm. part because feeling the anticipation of an awful catastrophe Mm -hmm. and then making yourself feel awful to preempt the catastrophe, which I definitely related to. I don't know what that is. Do you still feel that way or are you, (laughs) have you moved past it? 
Am I still neurotic? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Probably less, but probably less. But I think a lot of people, a lot of Americans, a lot of women, a lot of women of color feel where they're not, they don't feel like they're privileged to feel happiness or they're not allowed to feel happiness. So that if there is a moment of peace or good fortune, you automatically doubt yourself and you think you don't deserve it. After I just finished Minor Feelings before it came out, I did have that same, I guess, feelings of loss and emptiness. It's post-book depression. It's actually a common psychological condition, according to my therapist. I was definitely going spiraling downwards after I just completed Minor Feelings, turned it in. There was nothing more I could do. And I think part of it had to do with control. I had no control over how the book was going to be received. I feared that because it's about an invisible race, that the book itself would be invisible. But since it's come out, I've been actually really quite surprised and gratified by all the responses and how the number of people, a lot of women especially, and especially Asian American women who have said that they felt seen, which yeah. made me feel very validated too. So that's yeah. been great. Mm-hmm. No, certainly like for particularly many Korean friends and they were just reverberating with your book. Mm-hmm. I think it was the first... And it's interesting, I was talking to the author of Interior Chinatown, uh-huh. Charles Yu. Have you read that book? Yes, I and love it. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant and so funny and so painful as a white person to read that book and to recognize every single stereotype, to be able to almost anticipate every single stereotype that he mm-hmm. puts out. You write about this throughout the book, just this idea that for Asian Americans, it's still acceptable. Somehow the norm has not been broken. Maybe it will be broken now, but that mm-hmm. the norm has not been broken to mock accents, to stay with stereotypes that Hollywood sort of in the telling of these lives just continues to get away with stuff that I can't imagine at some point soon that we won't look back and say, what the hell? But why, what, I mean, I guess you sort of go into this in the book, this idea of being invisible, but how do you feel like it's escaped the collective awareness of how completely inappropriate and harmful it is? I don't know. I think there's a number of reasons. First of all, there's not as many of us as there are African-Americans or Latinx, though that will change because our demographic is growing exponentially. But in a lot of, and many Asian Americans have been here since the 1500s. And we, many of us have been recent immigrants. And I think that there is this phenomenon where, you know, if ethnic group is recent immigrants to a country, if you're only like first generation or even second generation, there's perhaps more of the survivor's need to fit in and assimilate and less a need to rebel and speak out and enter Mm -hmm. the public life. So it's possible that there wasn't as much of an outcry. 
I think also, second of all, that's that's one possible reason. But I think it's there's also it goes into that whole model minority myth. They think that we're quiet and submissive. They're not. We're not going to say anything. We're not going to push back. We're the racial group that they can bully and mock and say whatever they want. And we're not going to push back. We're not going to say anything. And even if we do say anything, we're considered absolutely non-threatening. The Asian American men are emasculated. Asian American female women are considered submissive. So that's there's that. And that's that stereotype has been there for many years. I guess the other one is is of us as the yellow peril but I also think that's changing. I do think that Asian Americans have been a lot more outspoken, especially within the last few years. And they ha- always have been. But I think, especially in the late 60s and so forth, and you've, and there's always been a lot of activism. But I think we're really seeing some real mobilized movement right now. And I'm hoping there's going to be real change in Hollywood, but also elsewhere in this country. Mm-hmm. Hollywood has a lot of work to do, though. It has a lot of work to do. It's just there's a lot of reckoning. One thing I will say about media, like representation is when I think about race, when I talk about race, I want to go beyond representation and think about like structural inequities. Like Hollywood likes to pat itself on the back and be like, let's better now. We're doing Mulan. There's crazy rich Asians. We're better now. And I'm like, no, that's not. We also need to reckon with the history of Hollywood and how much damage they have done to the representation of other racial groups. Your history is not a race just because you make a movie, a Disney character that's Asian. I feel like, too, the awareness, and this is my own ignorance, I knew about the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, and I think many people are aware of the Japanese internment camps, but not really. It's not something that we discussed. And to be fair, I can't remember the statistic about college seniors and their awareness of even the Civil War. And our understanding of history is very poor in this country. But like, I had no idea you write about you write another time in 1871, a mob of nearly 500 Angelinos infiltrated Chinatown in LA over a rumor that some Chinamen had killed a white policeman. They tortured and hanged 18 Chinese men and boys, which was the largest mass lynching in American history. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. But I also feel like because there's not this awareness, this collective shame that hangs over us, whether conscious or not, around the genocide that was perpetrated on the Native Americans and slavery and Jim Crow, like there isn't that same history or known history or spoken history in this country. And then you write about how Asians have the highest income disparity out of any racial group Mm -hmm. and that there's such a wide span. So I think that there's this idea in the culture that Asian Americans are killing it. You talk about it as like this idea of like next in line to be white, which is, but I think that people believe, oh, there's no harm. And so they laugh. And, Mm -hmm. but I do, I hope, I think the consciousness is changing or I hope it's changing. It's been a wild six months. I hope so. I hope it changes too. Maybe I'm in like my own little verified group and the Asian Americans I know are super woke, maybe more woke than 
other Asian Americans across the country or just other people. But I do think that there's some kind of change. Now, having said that, I think it's going to probably take a long time for Americans to see race beyond the black-white binary. We're still, based on the controversy of, say, the 1619 project, Americans Mm -hmm. still have a hard time reconciling with the fact that slavery was the foundation of this country and that it was like our success, our capitalist success had to do with slavery. If that's a basic historical fact that a lot of Americans can't digest or have a hard time digesting, I don't, I think it's going to take a long time for them to even understand what this country has done to other ethnic groups. But I'm, yeah, I'm Korean American. I didn't know about the lynchings until a few years ago, even. I didn't know about, I didn't study the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I think maybe there was like a sentence about it in high school in my history book, but there was so much that I didn't know about. You have to seek it out. It wasn't taught in a general American history class. You had to take an Asian American studies class in college in order to discover, find out all about that. And This is why I felt compelled to, I guess, incorporate that information in Minor Feelings that I kind of resisted at first. And I think that's when I thought about audience and I was like, I don't know. I mean, don't a lot of Asian Americans already know about this? And and I was like, I I was afraid of the book sounding like a dry history book because a lot of it, I wanted it to be both personal and provocative and theoretical and all this. I'm like, but do I really need to go into all this? And then I thought some of these facts I didn't know. And I thought it was really important to get into the broader histories, the broader Asian American histories, because it's just, it's still considered so obscure. There's no end to the grappling with it. Do you mind if I read you a paragraph from your book? Is that weird? No, go (laughs) ahead. (laughs) I have to address whiteness because Asian Americans have yet to truly reckon with where we stand in the capitalist white supremacist hierarchy of this country. We are so far from reckoning with it that some Asians think that race has no bearing on their lives, that it doesn't come up, which is as misguided as white people saying the same thing about themselves, not only because of discrimination we have faced, but because of the entitlements we've been granted due to our racial identity. These Asians are my cousins, my ex-boyfriend. These Asians are myself, cocooned in Brooklyn, caught unawares on a nice warm day, thinking that I don't have to be affected by race. I only choose to think about it. I could live only for myself, for my immediate family, following the expectations of my parents whose survivor instincts align with this country's neoliberal ethos, which is to get ahead at the expense of anyone else while bearing the shame that binds us. That last sentence in particular, I thought was so powerful because it goes to sort of the beginning and you talk a little bit about self-hating Jews and self-hating Asian Americans and then this idea of like self-hating Asian Americans, it goes to the beginning when you're talking about, you write, for as long as I could remember, I have struggled to prove myself into existence. But this idea of this neoliberal, like I have to just drive myself and the rewards, right, are economic, more economic security or being on the the one end of that economic spectrum. But it's such, such such a well- written explanation for that survivor instinct that drives, I think, so many Americans. And is that like when you trace that back, sort of your work ethic, your compulsive desire to be hard on yourself, where do you think that comes from? Is that cultural for you? Is it just 
the, oh. the model of your family? <laughs> I think it's part of it is my parents. <laughs> uh, I haven't really entirely escaped the, the tiger momming, kind of a, dick, a victim of some of that. Not tiger. I don't, wouldn't call it tiger mom. I think that's something different. Speaking of damaging uh, public <laughs> figures. But I, I, I think that being hard on myself, that's like multi-pronged. I think it was conditional love. And a lot of Asian Americans are familiar with this, where a lot of their kind of their parents equate worth, self-worth with net worth or how much with your success. And it's not, it's not something that's innate. You have to constantly prove yourself. And I think there's a lot of guilt and shame and indebtedness that I personally felt being second generation and my parents had a very hard life coming here, like a, a, a lot of Asian immigrants where they came from poverty and war and you name it. And there was this kind of weight that this weight of responsibility that was on me to make it worth their time that they came to this country. But their idea mm -hmm. of what success is a white supremacist capitalist model of success. It's like, it's making money. Like one time my mother turned 70 and I, my mother turned 70 and I, she's never been to Europe. So my sister and I took her, took her to Paris and she was absolutely delighted. And we were walking around and we walked into Hermes store and because my mother just wanted to look around and browse and it was so, I don't know, I just found it so fascinating that every customer in there was not white. They were all, mm. they were all Asian. They were like Chinese, maybe Korean, Japanese, Indian, Middle Eastern. They're also Middle Eastern. They're all there. And there was like worshiping the temple of Hermes. And I think that there's a lot of, especially in Korean culture, I think there's a lot of so much weight put on appearance and status but what's not really talked about is how much of that, how much appearance and status are based on whiteness, on codes of whiteness and Western capitalism. And this is not just domestic. It's not just this country. It's also, it's global. Like I talk about South Korea and how there's so much plastic surgery there. And one of the most popular surgical pre procedures is the double eyelid surgery where so that Korean women can have bigger eyes. And that was actually, that was a procedure that was invented by a white American dermatologist who was living in Korea during the war. He was there for like burn victims, but he also invented this double eyelid procedure so that Korean sex workers could look more attractive to white American GIs. So this kind of, mm. this kind of stuff runs deep. It's like our yeah. ideals of beauty, how you know ideals of beauty and success and all of that is so deeply entrenched and also world building and imperialism and all of that. So I think in my book, not I, it wasn't comprehensive, but just from a personal point. From my own life, I wanted to draw all these different connections. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best 
from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You bring it up at several points, but the death of your older brother at six months and the trauma that was then unspoken mm-hmm. and... And then something that you carry, which yeah. I think it's probably a profound impact on your your parents and then also you. And then to not be able to talk about it or to – I don't know if you guys talk about it, but you talk about this idea of – in the culture of not bringing up trauma in order to not re-traumatize. Where does that go? That's also a very – I think that's a – not – again, I don't want to generalize, but I think a lot of people who come from immigrant families can – identify with that even being in this pandemic it's like it's first world problems compared to you know what some immigrants went through but when this is over I don't want to read about the pan- I don't want to read a book about the pandemic I just want to like move on get past this and I think for my parents who came from a much more profoundly difficult place with the Korean War and with with the fact that they had very little after the war they didn't want to look back. They wanted to look forward. They wanted to invest in the future. This, the issue for the children is that children are used as, as an investment. They're like an investment that they make. But that, it, it's again, it's like a survivor's instinct. You don't look back. You look forward. You There's no point in dwelling on the past. My mother never liked to talk about the past except for her own father who who she loved very much, but otherwise she didn't really like to think about it. And with the son that she had before, before I was born, like she never talked about it. She just never mentioned it. But my dad did a couple times he did. And he, he, he has talked about him. In fact, actually, he talked about him uh, most extensively when my daughter was born. And uh, that was the first time he really talked about it. And how he died from a weak heart and he died when my mother was giving him a bath. So that was very tragic. That was the kind of pain that my mother didn't want to want to face. So I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack. I think (laughs) from that kind of family. (laughs) I loved the, the whole therapy story, which was hilarious. And then, and your rejection or being rejected and then your friend's advice A Jewish friend told me he never went to a Jewish therapist because it's too easy to assume everything dysfunctional about your family is cultural. Sometimes you need to explain your experiences in order to understand them yourself, which I loved this idea that there's no bypassing. You can't just go to a Korean therapist and bypass the explanation of your life because it's interesting, too, to think about even what you just said about your baby brother who died, that... The cultural imprint 
and the the big the wars the immigration etc and then there are the traumas and the tragedies that are specific or individual and then how the two come together you still have to process it you can't there's no shortcut basically and yeah it's easy to say oh it's they're so Korean. It's Korean. It's a Korean thing. And like, well, what is that Korean thing? Talk about that. And it's still important to unpack it all. Just goes to this idea of sort of also availability, right? Because going back to the beginning when you were talking about, I I frequently describe myself as a synchronized swimmer where I'm like, I look, I'm like, it's imperceptible what's happening below the surface with my feet to keep <laughs> myself afloat. And you use a similar you write, but while I may look impassive, I am frantically paddling my feet underwater, always overcompensating to hide my devouring feelings of inadequacy. And before that, you talk about your confidence being impoverished from a lifelong diet of conditional love and a society who thinks I'm as interchangeable as lint. Mm-hmm. Now that you're a parent and when you look back, and I want to talk about the interchangeable as a lint idea too, but when you look back, do you think in terms of the, that idea of conditional love, which I think many people can relate to, even though it's not accurate, but it certainly feels that way mm-hmm. as you're receiving it as a child, because you're there's just something that's not consuming about that love, right? There's like a lack of availability. It mm-hmm. feels attached to achievement. Mm-hmm. And so much of it probably you can I, when I think about my, I'm a mom now too. I'm like, oh, oh it's, okay. And it's funny when you were talking about the postpartum of the books, because I also feel like a lot of my anxiety was postpartum, like ex- not extended postpartum. It's a different thing, but it was like this idea of something's going to happen. This feels too complete. But when you think mm. about yourself as a mom, and you think about your child, and then, and how much of it do you think was grief? Your parents grief and or just fear, right? That they couldn't assure your safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I think you bring up some good points. I do think that it was, a lot of it was fear. It's like, there's no safety net. There's this, there, I was, I grew up with this intense fear of failure. And in retrospect, I can understand why my parents instilled that in me. It was because for them, there was no safety net. If they failed, then there was no, there was nothing to catch them. And I think coming here, they're like, you have to be, uh, it was achievement or else. And I don't know. I also think they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> I don't, I, I just, they didn't know what they were doing. And I don't, they were just, you know, there was no manual. I think when they were children, they didn't have a childhood. I, they were like, my both my parents had, six or seven they can't even the number always changes too i'm like i thought they were, you had eight siblings now you're telling me you have six siblings <laughs> there were so many siblings that there wasn't like real this any kind of parenting it was just like just being fed and having yeah. having a house and so when they were like here and then there were all these expectations about what a nuclear family should be like and or at least I had those expectations. There was not only a language barrier, but there was also this big cultural barrier too. And so I also, I'm sympathetic. I think since I became a mother, I'm sympathetic to what they had to go through. At the same time, when I read, when I first had my daughter and I was like reading these like parenting books, 
I was just, it was also just really sad. I mean, it was like, wow, they did everything wrong. Like they did everything wrong. They didn't do anything. And that was, that was, that was maybe not, not the greatest feeling, but I also learned a lot from my parents too. And I think there are a lot of values that they instilled in me about hard work and loyalty. And I think it's also as much as I go on about conditional love, of course, there is a lot of unconditional love on their part, but it's complicated. It's complicated. Loved the line and laughed. I don't remember it exactly, but where you're essentially, I can't really write about my mom because she would consume the whole book. I think many of us can relate. And I think it's interesting too, when you think about the who teaches us how to parent and the sort of way that this is passed down transgenerationally. And then this idea that my mom wasn't really mothered and she did an amazing job in a very strange way. But you ha- it's interesting to think about it as like a learned skill that you get from the way that you were parented and then what happens when that goes awry. I think one of the most intense, strange experiences to be in your parents' footsteps and like contemplating the way that you were parented and then what you're bringing forward and mm-hmm. what you didn't get. And yeah. then... At the same, being critic, being critical of it, but then at the same time, the gratitude of I got mm-hmm. where I am. Yeah, and it gives you a yeah. kind of wisdom. I think. I think that's why I started writing this book. It was because I came. It's such a boring answer, but I. It's true about why I turned to nonfiction and I wrote this book was because I came, became a mother and it. And as I said before, motherhood is very can be quite triggering. And so it was forced me to, I think I also had that sort of, that kind of propensity to just look forward and not look back. But being in this new role forced me to look back and think about my past and think about not just as a mother, but also as a a woman, as a citizen. It was a lot to, it was a lot to process. And I have to say that you learn you just learn so much. And I think there are a lot of things that my mother, well, I wouldn't mm-hmm. go that far. There's something <laughs> she did right. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm just going to say, I'm actually, I don't know. It's always been my, I tell people it's been my kryptonite. I can never write about my mother, but I've been interviewing friends from childhood, just people I know and their relationship with mothers and and I've been actually just focusing on people who grew up in K- Koreatown. And there's some crazy stories, that, <laughs> really crazy stories. <laughs> I hope it's the next book. I love this, or this part, it's hard to say I love this. This, I thought, was, oh, like such a gut punch. And, and I was just wondering about it in the context of just the last things that we've been talking about. Uh, one, you write, one characteristic of racism is that children are treated like adults and adults are treated like children. Watching a parent being debased like a child is the deepest shame. I cannot count the number of times I have seen my parents condescended to or mocked by white adults. And then you go on to write, to grow up Asian in America is to witness the humiliation of authority figures like your parents and learn not to depend on them. They cannot protect you. Oh, God. So powerful. And, but when you, as a parent now, do you feel like that's still being carried on? Or do you think that's something that happens specifically to first generation immigrants? Or do you still see that playing out in the culture? 
I don't, I, I think I'm in a very different position as a mother than my parents. I'm married to a white man and my child is biracial and we live in Brooklyn. It's probably a delusional thing to say, but I'm in a bit of a cocoon in that like people around me are more tolerant and, mm -hmm. and it's such a diverse community. So I, I don't feel that way. And I think that's also just a privilege of assimilation. I'm just assimilated. I'm educated here in, in America and I belong in certain ways that my parents didn't. And so I don't feel that when my authority, normally my authority as a mother is undermined in the same way mm -hmm. that my parents were, uh, authority of my parents was undermined. Although I have, as I talk about in the book, I have definitely been underestimated, looked over, or even had racist remarks directed at me because of my identity. But I think now as a mother, I haven't really faced that in the same way that mm -hmm. my parents did. Because my parent, and I think part of it was a uh, a language barrier because my parents didn't have the same facility with English and also the people around them were just really racist I don't know what to say I think they were just super and it was LA when I was a tween they moved to a white suburb and I think that was where it was the most extreme actually racism that I witnessed and it was really painful because you're supposed, it's drilled into you that you're supposed to respect your parents all the time. And there's certain kind of confusion aspects to that. But then you go into the outside world and you see your parents being diminished and it's very painful and confusing. Yeah, I'm sure. You brought up assimilation, which I think is so, I was interviewing Ibram X. Kendi and he was talking mm -hmm. about the sort of the problem with assimilation or this idea of one team, one dream, the loss of culture that comes mm -hmm. when we oh. force assimilation or when assimilation happens or, but it's such an interesting, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on it. Cause like when you talk about, you say if Whitman's eye contained multitudes, my eye contained 5.6% 5, 5 of this country. And mm -hmm. that this idea that you were continually getting this feedback that, you should write whatever felt true to your heart, but since you were Asian, you should stick to the subject of being Asian, even though yeah. no one cared about Asians. Those are your words. And then if you wanted to write about nature, no one would care because you were an Asian person writing about nature. So what's the ideal? I don't know what the ideal is, but I don't think the goal should be just assimilation because... And, but yeah. then it's also very, I think I, it's very, uh, I would say privilege of me to say that because in a lot of ways I am assimilated. I'm a professor. I have a book published, you know, and I'm married to a white guy. I am assimilated, but I think that for some people, like say someone who's an undocumented Guatemalan migrant, there's more than they want to belong. They want to be mm -hmm. a citizen because it affords them safety and affords them safety and education and, and some kind of public infrastructure that they can rely on. But I think there's this mistaken belief that as long as you belong, belonging is the end goal. Like yeah. It's about just, assimilation is about being invisible, not being a target. In the way my parents were a target because they were... Asian right. immigrants in a white neighborhood. Like, it's just about blending in. And first of all, I think that, I think when you assimilate that way, there's this assumption that, I, and I talk about this in book, there's this belief that that's the same as having power. 
in in this country. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's the same as having power because as you could see for a lot of BIPOC politicians, celebrities and so forth, or just business, once you attain a certain amount of power, all of your model minority characteristics that allowed you to assimilate will be used against you. So there's Mm -hmm. that. And I think also when you're assimilating or you want to belong, there's so much emphasis on this need to belong. But I think the question, you really need to question which America do you want to belong to? And I think that's what I try to emphasize. I think people just assume that belonging in America means belonging to white America, belonging to a capitalist ideal of capitalist idea of achievement, living in a good white gentrified neighborhood and white adjacent basically. And is that really belonging? Or is that is that also being attached to this kind of oppressive structure that still commits injustice not only to black and brown Americans, but also to your own ancestors, to your own parents, to probably if you're first or second generation to to the country that you come from still. So that's just something I just want people to really think about that. Like, which America do you want to belong to? I get tripped up on this, but it feels like we are also perpetually conflating race and culture and Mm -hmm. race being an outward expression of race or tiny deviation and difference in genetic code. But what is it, a quarter of a percent or something? Nothing real. And then we conflate it with culture and then expect people to, we discriminate based on race without Mm -hmm. acknowledging the culture that's lost. And I think that's true for all of us in terms of what we've all left behind as we've come to fit in or be American, but as a white American, I'm half Jewish, mm-hmm. but like I have a totally different, and I grew up in Montana, but I grew up in a totally different culture mm-hmm. than Vermont. And yet we don't really, this idea that like I'm white, that's my prevailing characteristic when I likely have more in common with you than someone who grew up in mm-hmm. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like it's so, we oversimplify and then reject or lose Mm -hmm. all of the stuff that makes life interesting in the process. And it's hard, it's hard, I think, to understand. Like I tried to get back into Judaism in part because I was like, that's my culture, or at least half of my family. And to abandon it, even if I'm not a religious Jew, feels like I'm rejecting Mm -hmm. an entire history. I don't know. But then is that wrong? Is it silly for me to embrace something that hasn't really been part of my life since I was a child? I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I feel like we have a lot of work in this country to do to understand the difference and ensure that we secure the safe passage of the culture. I think about that too, about cultural, the cultural values that are lost and that might maybe that my daughter will not have and that they, that sort of loss that she, and I wonder what her relationship to Korean culture is going to be. And I think it's cultural. I think that there's also, I was thinking about struggle too. My parents like to tell me how much I've, I didn't have to struggle the way they have. And I'm like, that's really patronizing. And it's not true, but it's true too. <laughs> but I do think there's, I think there's something to be mourned also about you have to have 
if not, if, if you haven't struggled yourself, you at least the stories of struggle have to be passed on. That we don't have Trump in office, yeah. for instance, so that we can really fight for equity. It's interesting. Yeah. You just brought it full circle too. Like in at the end of the book, in the context of like your parents pushing their suffering or struggle on you, you write, if the indebted Asian immigrant thinks they owe their life to America, the child thinks they owe their livelihood to their parents for their suffering. The indebted Asian American is therefore the ideal neoliberal subject. I accept that the burden of history is solely on my shoulders, that it's up to me to earn back reparations for the losses my parents incurred. And to do so, I must without complaint prove myself in the workforce. So it's just an interesting like the repeating pattern of it. And I think as we've secured sort of the economic safety that our parents were so frantic about, it's just, there's just the new stuff appears. The next level. And, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe being aware that with that in struggle, there is more struggle. As long as you're willing to struggle, yeah. that's good. That's empowerment of itself. And I think for all of us, it's what do we pull forward and what do we leave behind? And what can we put down and relinquish to the past and then bring the parts that are priceless with us? Yeah. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kathy Park Hong. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.